This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Finance. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. New Books in Finance is a channel of the New Books Network. And I'm delighted today to have as my guest, Gene Ludwig, the author of The Vanishing American Dream, A Frank Look at the Economic Realities Facing Middle and Lower Income Americans. The book is just out from Disruption Books. Gene is a former banker, regulator, and serial entrepreneur. He's currently the CEO of Promontory Financial Group that advises financial institutions on compliance and uh, security matters. Gene, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Daniel, it's uh, great to be here with you. So your title, your title says it all, and it has, I'm sorry to say, a, a rather bleak cover, a uh, dust cover, uh, showing a picture of, I'm presuming it's going to be York, but it could be any, any town in that situation, uh, that vanishing American dream. Can you describe what led you to want to address uh, this issue of the weakening over the last several decades of the middle class, the, the geographic and implications for it, and the you know the, the broader social problems that you're trying to address in this book? Daniel, you you got it spot on. Uh, it is indeed York, Pennsylvania, but it also it could be a picture of. Uh, really thousands of smaller American uh, uh, cities in the United States and, and many bigger cities. Uh, uh, it, I was moved to write this when I realized that the town that I grew up in, which was kind of Norman Rockwell, America, oh, wasn't perfect. There were, you know, were discriminatory aspects to the environment, not just uh, uh, race, but other discriminatory things weren't pretty. But fundamentally, it was a good place that Put, had good jobs uh, and and uh, local industries that people could be proud of uh, that it existed for uh, decades and decades. York Dental Supply, York um, Barbell, the first air conditioner in the world, York uh, Air Conditioner, which was famous at the time. Uh, when I went back to speak, oh, about a decade ago, uh, a little less than that, I realized that um, uh, the town that I knew uh, had deteriorated badly, and one can see that lamentably uh, all over the United States. Um, the, the people I love, the people I grew up with uh, are hurting, and that's uh, true uh, in too much of a uniform fashion in the United States today. And so you, you brought together a group of specialists, mostly on the academic side, but also kind of business and, and public policy people at a conference held at Yale, Yale Law School, uh, I believe it's April of 2019. And it, it, it makes for, I'm sorry to say, very important, but rather grim reading. It's not just York PA, as you suggest. It's a lot of middle America. I hesitate to use the term middle America. I don't know what that means, but we understand what it means. Uh, smaller, former industrial cities, uh, wherever they may be, and just the gutting of the middle class. 
and I, I, I want to launch into a discussion with what appears to be an important mismatch that you identify and, and most other people identify in the book is that the aggregate numbers for the economy in this country over the past 20, 30 years are not that bad, particularly when you use what we all know to be a highly, highly flawed measure of GDP. Uh, but that the aggregate measures are hiding kind of a hollowing out and a, a very uh, kind of disturbing uh, imbalance in in that level of economic activity. So again, if you were looking externally at the U.S., you'd say, well, it's not so bad. But if you look closer, the details are, are horrific. Can you go into you know that divergence between the aggregate numbers and what you see are the real shortcomings uh, of the economy right now? Yeah, oh, Daniel, you've, you've got it spot on. Uh, uh, the, the numbers are horrific. Uh, after my uh, experience of going back to York and seeing the town so deteriorated um, from what it was, uh, I, uh, I, I, I hired a research economist, uh, a, a youngster, to start researching the, the national numbers, the local numbers, et cetera. And the more we dug into the numbers, the more the numbers uh, painted a grim, as you say, but but just neon bright uh, picture. Um, uh, the, if you take for example, um, uh, you know just numbers in the wealth area. Uh, by the way, in particular for uh, African Americans, for, for uh, people of color, uh, you you find that um, for every dollar that a white family has, a black family has 10 cents. And by the way, 10 cents is a conservative and rather generous number in terms of what reality is all about. For uh, for just you know, average Americans that are not people of color, uh, you find that um, uh, the prices of the things that they most care about to get their kids, the American dream, education, is up dramatically from uh, what it was years ago, far exceeding any increase in uh, wages that they've experienced. Uh, I, I give you an example from 2000 to 2019, while arguably median, now this isn't lower um, uh, income people, this is median income, arguably we've grown up about 64%. Uh, educational costs are up 119-ish percent. Um, uh, and, you know, I may be off 1%, 2%, people may argue, but directionally, I'm spot on. Uh, your, your, uh, your colleagues and contributors really circle back more than maybe I would have expected to this issue of wages and labor and labor and wages, where the, in that metric, the middle class has really fallen behind, not only in terms of their earning power, but the, the, the uh, buying power, as you just say. It's, it's really more than this part of the national narrative about, yeah, we know the middle class is weaker than it was. There's been a hollowing out. But that wages part, is the numbers there were, were striking even to me, and I follow this stuff. Yeah, no, it, it's it's kind of hidden. If you don't dig it up, if you're not following it every day, you know, it wouldn't seem obvious to you because you know the the uh, uh, national um, uh, uh, organizations like the Fed uh, report the CPI, which is a broader basket of goods and services, and uh, you know that's gone up, but it doesn't look so horrific. But if you're trying to get the very goods and services you need, health care. Um, uh, as I mentioned, education, uh, um, uh, rental uh, uh, costs, uh, they're way up and you are seeing your life decline. 
let's shift to causes. And here again, if you listen to CNBC or read the Wall Street Journal, read a lightly, you know, the Atlantic or Forbes or something like that, you'll, you'll come up with the usual suspects that we have for causes, globalization, technology, trade, all of which your team identifies, though it's in, in very significant detail. But again, back to the labor force, you refer to it as an epic mismatch between what the world needs now in terms of skills and what our society is producing in terms of skill sets, you know, uh, middle skills, I think you call them. And that, that again, is a striking point. Again, the, I don't know that you differ significantly from the standard causes that globalization and deflation, technology, uh, et cetera. But this, this workforce mismatch comes back and many times as being kind of a central issue as to why the middle class has fallen behind. At least that seems to me. Is that a fair summary? Uh, uh, Daniel, it is, it's a multi-headed monster. And uh, it, it would be nice to give you one soundbite that covered all the sins. But fundamentally, uh, I, I believe the core of this has been that uh, we, we thought we were doing the right thing. Again, based policymakers making judgments on the basis of flawed data, uh, thought we were doing the right thing and saying, well, it doesn't matter if we globalize because the jobs that are going abroad are menial jobs that uh, will be replaced in the United States by great jobs that are, uh, you know, higher uh, value jobs and there will be a higher wage. Um, uh, uh, but unfortunately, the U.S. labor force uh, is not educated for those higher skilled jobs, whether it's in machine and tool uh, work. The Germans have been excellent at that. Uh, so that's not that's, you know, a college job, but it is a highly skilled job, equivalently uh, skilled and needed. Um, uh, it, it's true in, in the whole technology area of computer programming and computer uh, developments. It's been um, uh, a, a disaster in terms of our own educational system. And if you look at the uh, comparing the American educational system, even at the secondary level, compared to uh, what it is in other countries around the world, we're not just not number one. We're way down the pecking order. Of course, when you're way down the pecking order, that doesn't mean that people who can afford to go to the fancy schools and, and uh, 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 secondary schools and colleges and universities can't get an excellent education here. But it does mean that if you don't have access to those resources, you're in the middle and uh, lower income groups. Again, you're the ones who most slide off the uh, edge of the table. So, but let's push back a little bit because the educational shortcomings, the mismatch, there really is some truth to the standard narrative about globalization and, and free trade. Is there not? I, again, I'm not taking sides. I'm just echoing the fact that over the past 10, 15 years, this has become part of the narrative that what was identified in the 80s and 90s or even earlier as a positive, as you correctly say, is now probably correctly identified for better or for worse with deflationary trends and the hollowing out of the middle class. And so there has to be some acknowledgement that those macro issues, I, I think, that those macro issues also play a role. It's not just that we don't have vocational training the way the Germans do. There, there's, as you say, it's a multi-headed monster. But po national policy issues play a role. Absolutely. There is no doubt that this is a complex 
matter where there are, as I say, a, a, a lot of um, heads to this monster. And the way we've gone about globalization, assuming that in a classical economic sense, the, the more uh, trade you have, the better off net-net things are going to be, has just been wrong. Net-net, uh, it's going to be maybe on a global basis, but uh, not necessarily where you are if you're not going to keep ahead on education uh, and other talents. Um, uh, so that's number one. And number two, uh, we've allowed ourselves into some trade deals that have been, um, uh, uh, you know, lopsided. And furthermore, where uh, in some cases our trading partners uh, have not at all been scrupulous about their uh, obligations. Uh, they've cheated. <laughs> and uh, so that hurts too. So, you know, and, and technology, there's no doubt that um, uh, technology takes some jobs away. Uh, and and uh, in certain areas, there are going to be less jobs to do for the goods produced. But we have so much need in this country uh, 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 for good jobs, whether it's in the service area, health care, uh, whether it's in the educational area, teaching, uh, whether it's in, um, you know, the um, construction area. We have an infrastructure in this country that is deteriorating by the hour. Okay, so we're, we're, we're in agreement there that the – you know the the causes are what they are, and there there are many of them. Let's let's shift to really what the point of your gathering was at Yale. And again, I should highlight that this was a gathering of illustrious people at the Yale Law School, uh, a combination of uh, academics, uh, business people, policy people, and your point in bringing them together was not just to bring them together, but to to come up with some hopefully practical solutions. Do you want to sort of introduce not everyone because it's a long list, but you know. Your idea of this brain trust and trying to get the the as as many smart ideas out of as many smart people as you as you could. Certainly, um, uh, first I wanted it to be bipartisan. In other words, conservative economists and liberal economists, business people and activists, um, uh, 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 academics and uh, practical people who are on the ground, like uh, uh, mayors. Uh, 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 governors, uh, you know, uh, the n notable uh, uh, um, public servants who've had big national roles, who've seen the country from, uh, you know, a big national purview, as well as people who see it absolutely on the ground day to day. So as wide a spectrum of well-known people as you could, Nobel Prize winner, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Governor of Massachusetts, um, uh, mayor of, of Hartford, um, uh, 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 famous uh, 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 economist slash um, uh, editor, uh, as broad a spectrum of people as we could. Because I, I, although I had a belief that the economy for middle and low income Americans was sliding, and and some belief as to what the causes were. I didn't go into this with the notion that I was necessarily right or that some of the policy prescriptions I would have thought our directions to go in were right at all. So we asked three questions fundamentally. Uh, it's, it's, it's a three and a half. One, is it that bad and why? Two, what do you do about it on a national basis? What are the national 
policies you should follow if you want to turn this around? And then three, what are the local policies? Because the national policy, the local policies are not always exactly the same. I'll give you an example of that. If you're uh, a mayor in Hartford or New Haven and a national policy is, by God, we're going to come into Hartford and New Haven and we're going to educate these kids so they are the best at everything in the world. What's going to happen today, because there are no jobs in Hartford and New Haven to speak of, is they're going to all leave. And so you haven't made Hartford and New Haven particularly better. <clears throat> so um, so we, we brought this illustrious gathering together, uh, not just as a way to have fancy names, but to have as many diverse points of view as we could. And I, if I hadn't mentioned, I just want to emphasize, we brought business people together, people who have run businesses, um, uh, who would have a, 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 an important role, a critical role. Because after all, where do jobs come from? Where does opportunity come from? Uh, in the United States, it comes heavily from the business community. So let, let's get to those solutions. And again, acknowledging, I like how the book is organized and how you just introduced it, because I think it's very important. I think most people, once they think about it, come to realize this distinction between national solutions, at the federal government level, national policies versus local solutions. You can feel that if you're in New York, certain government policies from DC will matter, others less so, certain local policies will matter more so. So you, you do separate the panels from, into national solutions and then a follow-up panel on local solutions. And then it begins to sound like the Sunday morning talk show on the national solutions. And if, if that sounds, I apologize if that sounds a little snarky, but uh, there, there is an element to that where you have these individuals talking as we have spoken about for decades about this is what we should be doing, this is what we should be doing, this is what we should be doing. And that's why I like the local element of it coming in afterwards because that, that seemed in many ways more, more practical. But at the national level, there seemed to be a consensus despite the broad, reasonably broad political views that there were a couple key points that you wanted to make uh, or the group made in terms of national policy initiatives. I have them noted down as educational and training, infrastructure, and fixing the labor labor market. But you you may you know want to present them in a, in a different order. But let, let's take them. You've already referenced it, but let's be very specific about it. Educational and training addresses what appears to be almost the I wouldn't call it the underlying main cause of the problem. It comes up over and over again that we just don't have, that we have that epic mismatch. And you highlight community colleges. Do you want to, uh, or several of your speakers highlighted community colleges. Do you want to explain why they make so much sense in this environment? Uh, community colleges are, um, uh, in, in America, uh, very much career focused. And a number of our uh, speakers brought that out, that um, uh, their, their, their career training Operations. Oh, they can lead to um, four-year college and even graduate school. But very much, community colleges have been about uh, you know uh, basic college education tied with skills training for a um, a practical job, whether it's nursing or um, uh, uh, physical therapy, uh, still in the healthcare area, but also again whether it's uh, 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 computer science or welding, whatever the right. case may be. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so uh, that that's one of the reasons people felt so strongly that that was something uh, that ought to be made available, including uh, you know, right and left uh, were of the view that these uh, community colleges should be free or nearly free. I wonder if we don't have, this is a heretical statement, I wonder if we don't have too many liberal arts colleges. 
taboos to say? Well, I don't know. Well, uh, it depends what you do there, um, I think, in part. Um, uh, uh, and, and I don't think it means that they have to be narrowly career focused. But I do think that we need much higher standards and we meet, need to uh, emphasize a level of work ethic that is not um, necessarily uniform in the United States, that these aren't places to have uh, fun. Uh, uh, these are places to uh, work and learn. Now, with that, uh, you know, being there's a decline in the number of them, possibly, possibly. Um, I guess I'm a little bit biased, Daniel. I believe you can't have too much education. And if to some degree, some of the time is, is you know, uh, since wasted, uh, on um, on liberal arts, uh, if it's serious, so much the better. Then you can go off and do other things. We've just got to put imp- we've got to put massively more emphasis and money into the entire educational construct. On that, we can agree. It's just a matter. You know, you referenced the German system earlier, and I agree with you there. Where there's a, a linguistic difference or semantic difference between universities, which tend to offer the liberal arts, and the vocational institutions, which focus more on training. We have this whole notion of everything's a university, everything's a college. Uh, but it, it, I think it serves people better to clarify the difference between vocational training and, and liberal arts training. Uh, but that's that's more uh, topic for for another day. In, oh, in addition well to very well said. Uh, in addition to the, the educational and training, you, you, you a, a kind of a traditional answer of, of infrastructure investment. Larry Summers had some interesting comments about you know when you do that and how you how you you pay for it. But there was general agreement on on infrastructure. Uh, as a person who's participated in the financial system uh, in finance for the last two decades, and compare the you know financial Fed Federal Reserve or quantitative easing strategies as opposed to building bridges it's clear one of those works better than the other and it's building bridges uh, and you know infrastructure really does matter well I, I, yes and and it, look the infrastructure if you'll excuse the expression can be a bridge to nowhere if we don't make other changes but it's so important for two reasons one uh, it's a way to get people to work in meaningfully paid jobs relatively quickly. It's not immediate. There, I don't know anything that's immediate. But it, so it's 18 months or 24 months or 12 months. There's a lot of arguments uh, about it, but it will get people. When you build bridges, you know, you have product, you have to produce, you need, you need physical labor and it's well paid. Uh, uh, we probably got in this country at least a decade of uh, of uh, effort there. Now, if you say, well, where's the money coming from? What I find astounding is that um, we've just spent $2 trillion, uh, actually more like three, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, do the PPP program and, and, and another trillion dollars on tax relief. Um, I'm not saying these aren't needed. Uh, uh, on the contrary, the PPP was was very much needed. But what I am saying is um, we can find the money when we need it. Right? Just as they've analogized the need for PPP to a World War II need, I would analogize the need to get the middle uh, and lower income part of Americans going again and giving them a fair wage and opportunity uh, as a World War II kind of need, and we can sure find the money and we've got to spend it and do it. 
it's something that uh, Robert Schiller makes uh, from a slightly different context about community and uh, binding together, but he makes the same World War II point uh, uh, a number of times in the in the book. Very well said. Absolutely. In addition to infrastructure and education and training, uh, the national solution at the level of national solutions, the fixing the labor market returns again and again. It's sort of, as I said, a kind of a thread that holds the whole book together is the broken labor market. What at the national level are the solutions or proposed solutions to, to fix that part of the problem? Well, the one thing I think that um, is probably uh, you'd find unusual given the um, uh, diversity of the, the uh, participants is the agreement that um, we've got to do something uh, to uh, enliven the private sector, um, uh, private uh, industry. At the end of the day, uh, I, let's face it, government can produce many jobs, but most jobs uh, in this country are produced by the private sector. And, uh, and, and it is very much a good jobs question with good wages. Uh, uh, so why have we seen in places like York, Pennsylvania, globally leading important industries uh, either decline uh, or uh, get sold out uh, and disappear uh, with all that comes with that? Uh, both from a civic support sense to a uh, uh, you know working man and woman on the ground sense, um, and what can we do to reverse that? That has to be reversed, or we will never solve the problem. Well, there are a number of uh, pieces to it, but one piece that I care about personally, and I've been involved in this as a regulator, is regulation. Regulations needed. We have to protect our people. We have to do it in healthcare and finance and, and lots of areas. But it has to be smart regulation. It can't be a constant building up of regulations that are so complex that you can't have small businesses operate, that you fundamentally drag down the efficiencies of business and therefore drag down the economy. Now, how you do that there, uh, if you say it, what I've been covering today is not a soundbite, there you've really got no soundbite because this has got to be something that is a national priority, but it has got to be something where you get the best and the brightest to do these things with scalpels, not meat axes. And the opportunity to do so appears to be less and less right now because there is no national consensus on these solutions. There is no, to, to echo Bob Schiller, there's no World War II to, to rally around for this. Everyone agrees there's a major problem, but the disagreements are as great as the, the – the only thing that's agreed upon is the nature of the problem – is the problem, maybe even not the nature of it. Certainly, no one's agreeing on the solutions at this point in our – circa 2020, despite your effort to gather a broad group of people from a legislative perspective, uh, the prospect of getting something done anytime soon, I'm sorry to say, seems to be quite low. Um. Uh, 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 yes and no, Daniel. Uh, this, uh, from a regulatory perspective, uh, oddly enough, the big headline concerns that tie up the uh, Congress in knots are really not mostly where the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road in uh, regulation. And that is something that federal and state and local agencies can deal with. Uh, so that if you have an administration that really focuses on this in a mature 
careful way, as I believe we did, not perfectly by any stretch of imagination, but to a great degree during the Clinton administration, uh, we can make uh, great progress. It's not, again, soundbite stuff, but a great deal can be done. If there was a soundbite to tell you, the one thing I would focus on at every agency is having really effective ombudsman programs that can hear uh, the complaints of individuals who have been wronged and businesses that have been tied into knots. We did that when I was in government. We had the first one at the controller's office in the financial services area. Congress ultimately mandated um, puts people at all the other um, uh, agencies, that is banking agencies. The problem is there has not been since Clinton administration a will to make these offices effective. But this is something that would be a significant plus in terms of getting one's handle on the regulations. Well, I, I hope that's uh, indeed the case, the sort of uh, behind-the-scenes regulation. Let, that provides a nice segue to what is a very interesting part of the book, most interesting part of the book, which is local solutions. And you started with York PA, and then you have a lot of local uh, you know, mayors and governors speaking. And sometimes local is right. It's just easier. You can't solve the world's problems. You solve a problem one at a time, and that occurs on a local spectrum. I thought that that was was in some ways more encouraging more, uh, the description of local circumstances was very distressing, but also the the energy and enthusiasm towards local solutions was was very high, in many ways higher than for national solutions. And so I, I took some encouragement from that. However hard it is that you can't fix the whole country, you fix one community at a time. Albeit you mentioned, you know, there's a, a, a fluid labor market, and if you fix one area, the labor force will move. But nevertheless, the, can you highlight some of the local solutions that that you're participants uh, brought to the fore? Sure. But mo- most cities and towns uh, in America, maybe all of them, have something special that often caused them to grow up and at one time in history be successful. Um, uh, whether it's a, uh, and, and, and often they leave behind those periods of success, also platforms that can be used for future development. Let me give you some examples. Um, uh, in York, Pennsylvania, there's a beautiful, uh, historic old town. If that old town were, um, really focused on with more vigor than it is, uh, it could result in a kind of Williamsburg environment that would attract tourism, uh, would attract, um, uh, businesses to locate in New York because of its beauty and, and how um, uh, felicitous it is to live in that area. Um, uh, other towns uh, have, um, uh, they're at a crossroads of major uh, geographic areas, and they have a natural uh, place for distribution, right? Even in our day and age today, when we're on the internet, the goods have to be distributed from somewhere. And some of these uh, places are natural hubs for distribution. Uh, other cities and towns have the uh, natural opportunity for um, energy generation uh, with uh, many of the new uh, energy technologies that we have, either because of constant wind or sun or or uh, even hydroelectric. Uh, any town can be sufficiently enlightened to um, uh, you know place local emphasis on its own 
uh, training and educational opportunities uh, and its own tax environment uh, or other uh, changes to the environment that can make them more felicitous uh, in terms of uh, inviting uh, businesses to grow and prosper in their locations. Um, so um, there's lots local uh, uh, mayors uh, and town councils can do uh, to make their um, their uh, uh, local units uh, attractive in advance. I've shifted. I, uh, one story amounts to nothing, but uh, I, over the years, I've shifted sort of my charitable donations to. I've just come to the conclusion that I, I feel it locally, and it makes more sense, and I can see the benefits of it. And I've shifted from sort of national organizations to to local organizations. I just think there's a psychological element to that that has uh, some some import, frankly, compared to boy. I hope Washington can figure this out because that's 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 a, a difficult proposition, regardless of administration and so forth. And I know you served in a national administration, and all, all the respect that, but I think there is a, a local bias that many people have that uh, uh, they, they figure they can solve things in their local community more readily than they can in the nation. Well, one good example of that, Daniel, is I believe you said that you had moved from Philly to Pittsburgh and you're now home is Pittsburgh. But Pittsburgh has the Growing Up Great uh, uh, program, uh, which uh, uh, PNC Bank, particularly the former chairman, uh, Jim Rohr, got going. And it's a terrific uh, preschool uh, focus on giving kids an extra boost, uh, particularly in low-income communities. And that's an example of a local focus, local program in the educational area that's made a big difference in the Pittsburgh community. Yeah, I'm involved with two. I'm not involved with that one, but I'm involved with two others that are uh, address similar issues. And again, I, I don't know. We'll know in 100 years, but uh, it certainly feels like the right thing to do right here, right now. Let me, let me shift to maybe problems with the solution. You acknowledge in your conclusion, sort of a call to arms, but you acknowledge, listen, this, this is hard. There is no one solution. It, it requires things we don't currently have. But I, I want to kind of synthesize those challenges and, and summarize them and push back a little bit just for the sake of, of argument. First of all, you, you gathered some very smart people, but then one person opens his mouth and turns out he's the agent provocateur. Shouldn't be too hard to figure out who he is. And he sets everyone back on their heels. We have a, a bunch of very, very smart people gathered at Yale, in a, at the Yale Law School. And one of the people stands, stands up and says, you know, we're all part of the problem, not part of the solution. And it's a striking moment. Do you want to you know, describe that and why he's awfully correct in, in some regard? Well, there, there is no doubt that the, the fundamental point that he uh, made most um, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, upfront or noisily or whatever was, was a point that others had made as well that uh, uh, private schools – uh, including Yale and Harvard and Prince, are places of privilege. They're expensive to get into. Uh, they uh, are highly selective, and uh, they're not uh, in and of themselves, you know, easily accessible by low and moderate income uh, Americans. In other words, you just can't, um, uh, um, you know, uh, you can get scholarships and and uh, you know ways to get there. But it's not as, uh, you know, part of the sort of um, solution as state schools have been historically in America. Um, uh, uh, and that's a real issue. There's no doubt about that. 
um, they have been places of privilege as well as places of great education. Um, uh, but, you know, America is a rich and diverse uh, society. And um, uh, I think that that is what's most needed is not to worry about that, but to worry about the affordability and the quality of what used to be uh, uh, state school, state universities, uh, uh, the California system, Penn State and our state of Pennsylvania, that not only could provide superb education, but also were economically accessible to everybody. But when I was the youngster, I, I believe the number is uh, correct, but it's certainly directionally correct, that it cost $400 a semester to go to Penn State. Uh, uh, even in those days, virtually everybody could afford $400 a semester. Again, this is directionally correct, though the number may not be uh, perfectly accurate, but I think it's $18,000 today. Um, and that's and then you got room and board, books and this and that. So uh, no matter what you do in terms of looking at wage growth during that period, it doesn't nearly keep up with the increase in the cost of going to places like Penn State. And as you know, these state schools in America have also struggled in terms of their own economics and the uh, grants they've been able to get from state governments. Uh, that's a much bigger issue for us, in my view, than uh, the relatively small in number and you know size of educational um, uh, uh, impact in terms of numbers of people that uh, schools like Yale, Harvard, and, and Princeton or whatever account uh, for. So I, I had the benefit of going both to a small liberal arts college in the Northeast and also a, a Big Ten land-grant university. And as pleasant and rewarding as the former was, it's very, very clear that the bang for the buck for society was so much more on the side of the land-grant university. It wasn't even a comparison. And uh, the nameplate of my liberal arts college was, was great and has served me well. But the the educational bang for the buck of of a, of a Big Ten school is sort of unbeatable. So uh, I'm totally sort of in agreement there. Totally with you. That and, and furthermore, I, I went to a public high school. I may, uh, maybe you did as well, but I went to a public high school. I got a, an excellent education, and I also got an education in a diverse community of people that has served me well in life. Uh, people who did all kinds of different things in life and had different uh, upbringings. So there's a lot of advantages not to being in a narrow, privileged environment that really serves you well in terms of your own success. Abington High School, class of 1982, go galloping ghosts. So the agent provocateur was Larry Summers, by the way, uh, former Treasury Secretary, former president of Harvard. I, I do want to circle back to his point. That, uh, he, he made a, uh, an observation, not just that we're part of the problem, not part of the solution, but he said that the policy prescriptions coming out of a Yale Old School seminar are going to be largely rejected by some portion of the population that just doesn't want to hear from policy prescriptions from the Yale Law School because of its coming from, et cetera. So it, there, there, there is underlying social tensions that make this harder when you know the people in whose name, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be paraphrasing him or someone who's commenting on him, but you know, in whose name you're trying to, to, people who you're trying to benefit or act on behalf of them really aren't that interested in your help or don't share your worldview to begin with. That makes this even harder. And I think that's a fundamental challenge to, to what you're trying to do current, in the current society where, boy, are we divided. Uh, well said. 
there is no doubt there is uh, a great deal of anger and mistrust where uh, there are a number of Americans that believe that the programs, uh, however well intended, that were meant to be helpful have not been helpful to them. And you uh, hit upon free trade, which has uh, certainly been a, a, a flashpoint in that regard. Uh, and then, of course, we in America have a, a natural and, um, uh, uh, in my case, highly respected a pioneer spirit where people like to do things on their own. Uh, and, and they really uh, want to be able to use their own uh, energy and uh, their, their own uh, uh, lights to be able to advance and don't like uh, to think that they're just getting handouts. That's very respectable. Uh, but I'm afraid that it doesn't mean that uh, one doesn't have to create the national and local Petri dish where they actually have a chance to use those skills in a productive way uh, that um, that will allow them to be independent uh, and, uh, and advance uh, their justifiable economic um, upwardly mobile desires. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have that uh, Petri dish environment uh, in the United States at the moment in too many cases. And however much people rail at the system, uh, railing in and of itself will not solve the problem. And this is where I was struck a little bit again by Bob Schiller's comments, which were a little bit out of the ordinary for him. He's a very talented historian. A lot of his work is historical finance. Uh, and I follow him in other uh, venues, but his his point that you know, World War II provided cohesion, which allowed a lot of national policies and even local policies to work better. And in the, it's been a long time since we have been that unified in a goal. And I, I had to kind of ag- uh, agree that that boy that that's striking, but it's it's almost a sad commentary that you would need a war in order to rally people. That's a, a, a at once true and frightening. Well, um, that point, which is an excellent point, and and Bob Schiller is an enormously talented human being, was taken up uh, in a slightly different way by Jacob Hacker. Uh, uh, Hacker's written a number of superb books, uh, one of which uh, called Amnesia. Uh, The point of calling it amnesia is that we've sort of, you know, gotten amnesia as to what was a very good period of time uh, from 1945 through the 1970s, where business, labor, and um, uh, government had a loose, loosely speaking, kind of social compact for advancing the well-being of America. <clears throat> and um, I, you know, it wasn't always the case that everybody was at each other's throats. Um, and, and of course, he longs for going back to that period. In that regard, there is, I think, uh, some. there are some very uh, good um, signs that that kind of period of a more cohesive society is something that people are striving for. The Business Roundtable, as you probably know, Daniel, has adopted a stakeholder value uh, focus goal as distinct from only shareholder value. And that's a big deal, actually. I don't think it's gotten enough attention because in doing that, what the roundtable is saying is that there are a variety of stakeholders in business that are of equivalent importance, including workers, uh, not just shareholders, uh, so that it shouldn't be just about um, shareholder uh, uh, excess 
uh, it should be about a shared set of um, stakeholder responsibilities and, and opportunities, which I think is uh, really um, uh, you know, quite exciting and respectable. I, I hope I hope you're correct on that. I will tell you, as a, a person who operates in the uh, investment management industry, if I were to pursue stakeholder capitalism as of today, the SEC would be calling tomorrow because the rules, the go to jail rules, the the you know forty act rules, and the various investment rules are still all about shareholder activity. And if you shift and get ahead of the laws and adopt a stakeholder approach, you actually run legal risks. So it's just something that it, it, it's nice for the business roundtable to do it. Someone like me in the industry, kind of buried in the depths of the investment industry, will take our cues as much from the SEC as we will from the business roundtable. Well, so just more, a, more, a note there. Yeah, more so. You're absolutely right. But directionally, it's important. It doesn't mean that there aren't lots of other things that need to be done to catch up. Fair, fair enough. I, I want to wrap up, if I can, with where you started, Gene, and, and sort of challenge. You, you do highlight in your introduction sort of the negative outcome. And there's sort of a – this uh, book was largely written before COVID. The conference occurred uh, over a year ago, and the book was finished up uh, in COVID. But you, you, you do reference the Spanish empire. I could almost refer to it as the Spanish flu from 100 years ago. But you reference the, you know, the Spanish empire based on the silver mines and silver mountains of, of uh, South America. They took all that money and they didn't do much with it. And then when the silver ran out, so did the Spanish empire. And it uh, falls into a context, I'm as a historian very sensitive to these things, that empires come and go, hegemons come and go, dynasties come and go, kingdoms come and go dominant societies, even liberal ones, there, aren't, there isn't much of a track record because liberalism, classical liberalism in the sense of uh, the type that we've been pursuing for the last couple hundred years is, is relatively young in the broad scope of, of world history. But dominant societies, shall we say, whether they're liberal or illiberal, uh, come and go. And, you know, it's you read the news and you might come to the conclusion that the United States is in the eighth or ninth inning and that what you're describing as the situation in York, PA and in many other communities is um, unavoidable. And I, I know you don't take that view, but it's it's possible to take that view. And I, I, I wish you would kind of end on why, that, why I'm wrong uh, about viewing this as sort of a natural decline of a dominant society as all the other dominant societies for the last 5,000 years have, have fallen prey to? Uh, well, um, I, if I could, it's an excellent, excellent point and admonition that this is hard and what we're, uh, uh, you know, focusing on and uh, in the book, which is turning around the trajectory of the United States uh, is uh, important, but, but very, very hard. I, I guess I would uh, turn our attention to China. China's, if not the oldest, certainly one of the oldest civilizations and national groupings that we know about. And it's gone through some pretty difficult times. Uh, uh, at the same time, we're seeing the rise of China uh, uh, that's uh, you know, really astounding in terms of the speed and the uh, social cohesion uh, that we're seeing. By God, we all know that China isn't perfect, and we certainly don't want to turn the United States into China. But it is an example of a very old society that has been through ebbs and flows for literally thousands of years in that case. Um, uh, there's no reason to think with the wealth of the United States and what should be the um, uh, 
uh, very good and historically good um, uh, relationship with our neighbor to the north and, uh, you know, most often with our neighbor to the south. Uh, so we control uh, an immense continent, immense and wealthy continent, that the United States, uh, you know, doesn't have a few more hundred, if not thousand years left in it. I, I absolutely and, hope hope that's the case. Can I ask you, the conference, the book, what's next? This is a book, not just a, a reflection on society. This is a call for action. How, how are you following up with this to try to make some of these uh, policy prescriptions take effect? Well, the first thing we're going to do and are doing right now, so stay tuned, is we're coming out with a uh, LISA website. LISA is the Institute for Shared Economic Prosperity. And, um, uh, and the website will have uh, what I think people will mostly view as astonishing uh, uh, data in terms of sort of what are the real numbers that, uh, uh, you know, meaningful numbers in terms of um, unemployment uh, rates, uh, GDP, uh, and ultimately um, uh, uh, the uh, inflation uh, uh, as, as starters. So the policy people in the United States, right, left, center, whatever, can focus on the real numbers. That, I think, will make a very significant contribution. I hope you will come up with a replacement for GDP. That would be very helpful for all of us. It is on the drawing board. Yes, we will. And and we are uh, planning, already in the planning phases, for a a second seminar, a second book that will focus on exactly the areas that you have have, uh, cared about, uh, which is, okay, how do you really implement these things? How do you really turn things around and get them going? And so stay tuned. I look forward to having you back on the show to discuss uh, the implementation stage. The book is The Vanishing American Dream, a frank look at the economic realities facing middle and lower income Americans, edited by Gene Ludwig. Gene, thank you so much for for being a, a guest on the show. Daniel, honored to be with you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.